this is the first of a, what I expect to be a significant series of um, YouTube live events on uh, Wednesday evenings. We may change to another time slot, um, but I'm wanting to keep it at Wednesday evening right now. My daughter will be coming back from Peru for a while, and uh, I'd like to be around and available for her on the weekends uh, if I can see her. A couple of quick points. Uh, I was, I think, one minute late. Um, and actually, sometimes that's pretty good for me. We've had a very, uh, a lot of, of uh, business going on, or, or, or a very busy day. The first reason is um, I've been seeing patients for K Health. Uh, you probably don't recognize it. I don't know how many people saw the videos I've done on it. I did a few videos on a thing called K Health. It's a uh, it's a very promising uh, technology uh, for medicine. It's like the deep deep blue of medicine. When I say that, you may say, what does that mean? Well, think back to the 90s. Gary Kasparov was the reigning champion in chess at that point. And uh, IBM, IBM Deep Blue challenged him. And he took the challenge. The first year, he won. There were, there, he lost one game, but he won the whole match. The second year, he was beaten. And he's given very uh, uh, a lot of talks about the experience since then. His point was, it is... Uh, man has to hand over the uh, the reins uh, for chess championship permanently now to artificial intelligence. Now, what does that got to do with medicine? Well, here's the thing. If you look at diagnosis, that is a very, medical diagnosis is a very tricky item. Um, <clears throat> the more experience, the more you've seen patients, the better, better off you are. Also, one of the things that... Um, one of, the one of the characteristics is never trusting your judgment and think about other things and keep acting nervous and keep going back and thinking, what could I be missing? Those docs actually do a much better job usually. Um, here's the statistics. Uh, on a very good study, it basically put a few cases in front of docs. And the, quote, easy cases, they got about 60% right the first time. On the hard cases, they got 90% right. I mean, no, excuse me, 10% right, 90% wrong. Now, that sounds scary, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. I've made, a, as I've mentioned many times, I've made a living, a huge portion of my career, well over two decades, maybe close to three, uh, being a medical director, supervising other docs as they went through these processes. Um, any human individual just doesn't have the realistic capacity to understand, to communicate effectively with patients and get everything the patient knows about their case out of that patient and also have all of that experience. Here's yet another thing where the computer really helps. Um, the computer has the advantage of timeline. What I mean by this, if you look at the K-Health um, uh, app, they've got 5 million different uh, interactions built into it. Now, um, so if a patient has seen 10, 15 doctors, uh, something very unusual, like a, you know, a pain in the left ear or something, you know, uh, maybe not a good example, but something very unusual in the first two visits that nobody would think is consequential. When you have the opportunity to have timeline analysis up until the eighth, 10th case, and you've got a diagnosis that makes unusual things that seemed insignificant sometimes become very significant in retrospect. So the computer has the advantage of retrospect. Now, is this ready for prime time? Depends on what you mean prime time. Um, I'm helping them get set up because of my experience and background in managing docs and my uh, experience in managing telemedicine programs. Um, so it's a very good group. Uh, it's not quite ready to to add to some of the services that uh, that I provide uh, with with PrevMed. When it does become available, that is one of the things that uh, I look to uh, to provide. So I just wanted to share with you an update on that. And actually, one of the things I'll do over the next uh, few weeks, I uh, plan to interview Ido Paz. Ido is the um, chief medical direct uh, chief medical officer of KMD. Uh, K Health, and if you're curious about it, you can look it up on your um, 
on your, I mean, you can look it up on, in the app store on your iPhone. Uh, I'll show you, I'll see if I can find my K health. Yep. That's my K health app. And so what it does is you enter your, it asks you your symptoms, you enter them in, and then it starts telling you the probabilities. For example, okay. Uh, for there are 673,000 men that had sore throat the same way that you did. 650,000 of them had a virus. The rest had um, allergies, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's a great app. It's free. Uh, go download it and uh, look at it. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to, uh, to mention before we get started with dealing with questions is dysfunctional HDL. I had a... Uh, couple of readers going back and our viewers going back and forth on the issue of dysfunctional HDL. Um, I didn't have time to respond earlier, but I have now. And I wanted to let you know, I did go ahead and do a, an intro video to that topic. Now, what is dysfunctional HDL? Well, actually, all HDL is not uh, created equal. Um, you can see that in, the, uh, in some of the tests themselves. But let's put uh, the uh, the lipid screening. But let's put that aside. Whether it's the the big fluffy HDL, uh, the bigger HDLs, or the the smaller ones, let's put that issue aside and let's talk about the key issue. Um, two key issues. One is a mystery uh, regarding treatment, and the other is a genetic issue regarding treatment. I'm not the first one to notice that uh, HDL appears to be far more important than LDL in terms of preventing heart attack and stroke. A lot of people have seen that. And it's actually led to experiments where they took um, uh, apherist uh, HDL, meaning HDL that had, had pulled out of folks and uh, uh, filtered it out of the blood and put it into an IV, put it, put it into somebody's veins. Um, still do not get significant function out of that. They've tried that multiple different ways. Now, do they know why that's not working? No, they don't. Uh, it's still a mystery, but there's a lot of interesting work going on in that area. The other point that I uh, wanted to mention, and I'll just cover that real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into some questions, has to do with genetics. Now, you remember what HDL is, uh, high-density lipoprotein. Lipo means fats or oils, so cholesterol, um, uh, triglycerides, things like that, um, and oils. And uh, the other piece to lipoprotein is the protein itself. Now, uh, lipids are not genetically uh, derived or, or uh, designed or planned, or we don't have any plans for our lipids in our genes. The, our genes determine our proteins. So, at the bottom line, you'd have to start thinking, have to start thinking, well, what's the protein in there and are there variations? Absolutely, there's no question. There's, um, there's actually a, a one type that's known, it's uh, HDL uh, Milano or ApoA1. Remember, ApoA1 is the uh, protein that you see in HDL and ApoB is the protein that you see in uh, the... Um, uh, LDL, IDL, intermittent, uh, immediate uh, density uh, lipoprotein, VLDL, very low density lipoprotein and calomicrons. So let's go back to that APO, APOA1 because that seems to be the one that's really important. Are there genetic dysfunctions that we've seen? Yes, there, there are. Like I mentioned, uh, Milano. Um, <clears throat> and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, put it in the comments. I believe Milano was discovered, uh, the Milano variation of APOA1, and uh, created the, um, a significant uh, improvement in longevity, pushing 100 years for uh, the people that had the Milano variant of HDL. So yes, um, unlike what uh, one of the viewers commented that uh, the topic of dysfunctional HDL was a pseudoscience. No, it's not a pseudoscience. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And uh, I just thought I'd uh, make you aware. If we get a few minutes a little bit later, uh, I may uh, cover 
some of the functions of, AL, of HDL. We've talked about them in other videos. Uh, John did in a video he did on it, and I've uh, done it in a couple of videos as well. And when this video that I taped uh, today or recorded today comes out, it uh, covers a great graphic out of a uh, na recent Nature Magazine review on the topic. So let's get to comments. Nathan Perry, three thumbs, three thumbs up before event begins. That's rock star. Uh, you know, maybe I'm getting senile. Maybe I did that. I don't remember. But uh, good to see you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for your interest. Roger Paulgard, why were you not concerned with your 20-year calcium score reduction in the possible releasing of hot plaque? But concerned about that when explaining the use of vitamin K2 method of calcium reduction. Well, let me be clear. I was never incredibly concerned about calcium K2 uh, reduction. I did say, look, uh, one of us, John had mentioned a, a, some, a study which had some, what I considered and said multiple times, I think fairly weak evidence that removing calcium alone from stable plaque might be like removing the mortar from a brick wall. But uh, that's concept, that's not evidence. I have seen no evidence that removing calcium from plaque actually made it weak. And I think I was clear about that. So I was not, uh, uh, not did not have that much of a concern in that area. I'll tell you where my biggest concern with K2 has been. And, and it, it remains today, even though I'm getting much more interested in K2. I've... Uh, I'm actually doing a, a series. I'm in the middle of doing the research phase for a series on K2. Um, it's a thing called fiddling while Rome burns. Uh, there is so much, there, at one time there was so much excitement about K2, it seemed like um, folks were wanting to say, okay, you know what, let me make sure, and you still see that on the internet, let me just take my K2. Meanwhile, forget about insulin resistance, forget about diabetes, forget about the major uh, smoking, forget about obesity, forgetting about the major things, the major lifestyle issues that drive heart attack and stroke risk. I hope that, uh, I hope that answers your question, uh, Roger. Loretta Dillingham, good morning from Australia. Uh, my goodness, I am so excited, uh, Loretta. I can't. I would never have imagined um, getting a uh, morning viewer from Australia on the live event. Thanks for attending and thanks for pointing that out, Jim Maley. Hi, Doc. Uh, Lincoln Camargo. Lincoln from Brazil. Oh, you're. Uh, we've got a, we've got a contingent in in Brazil. I don't know. If, I'm sure you guys don't know each other. So we've got a few patients as well. Thanks for making us aware. Gigi Friedman, we want a suspicious doctor versus a complacent doctor. Oh, yeah, I, I do too. I do too. And here's one of the things that, uh, that uh, tickled me about that article about the docs that uh, remain suspicious and we're looking things up. I've done a lot of work with, uh, with DOs. I've done a lot of work with foreign medical graduates. And I have found a lot of those docs to be extremely, extremely good, extremely conscientious. And in fact, when you look in the, uh, in the patient community, you look in the uh, MD community, quite a lot of docs have, uh, you know, everybody has their, their prejudices sometimes. And there's, I've seen prejudice against groups like foreign medical graduates. Um, I had a chuckle when I reviewed that article and saw that, you know what, people were more likely to People that were more likely to look that up did better. And guess who they mentioned? Foreign medical graduates going back and being more likely to look it up. So thank you again for the comment, Gigi. Clinton Bird, if I'm I'm Clint, if I keep taking minerals and doing exercise, will my endophilin repair and my erections get better? Well, you'll have to clarify for me what endophilin is. Um, I First of all, we'd have to make sure that that's what's causing problems with erections, uh, Clint. Uh, and I think that would be a get, get a little bit deeper. Um, then we'll go on this um, on this video. 
Uh, pardon the pun. I didn't mean. Uh, uh, Gigi, sounds uh, interesting. Georgia, hi from Belgium. Belgium, very good. Thanks for uh, for your interest. Babak Ganjavian and Babak, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hi, doctor. Hope all is well. What's your take on raptamycin? If mTOR is one of the causes of aging, blocking it should be beneficial. Dr. Adia is a big believer on this. You know, and I think what you meant was rapamycin, R-A-P-A-M-Y-C-I-N. I I did a short series on that. Uh, Look up mTOR, autophagy, uh, rapamycin. uh, Well, Google Ford Brewer and those terms, and you'll get a lot of videos. Yes, there's a uh, there's actually a black market, I think, uh, for rap, uh, rapamycin. Uh, mTOR, by the way, in case you don't know it, stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. So yes, this whole issue of rapamycin and uh, autophagy is a critical issue, and it does appear to drive um, drive some significant determinants of health. I would say, though, be careful. I am trying to remember right now. I, I uh, got a little bit curious when I was reading about that. And um, sure enough, I think the major uh, that uh, rapamycin is used, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, I think the major use had to do with cancer treatment. Uh, in other words, I think there were some very significant side effects that uh, you really need to be careful of before you and think about before you start trying to Go, go get some black market uh, rapamycin. Joe Burak, thank you for doing the live uh, chat. You're very welcome. I've had a few people say they don't like the live chat. They're, uh, there's, uh, I would guess, a little bit more of a focus, organized, control kind of mind. And as you can see on the live chats, it's sort of all over the place. It's, but uh, I enjoy both. I've uh, really enjoyed the experience doing the live chat. I meant to get started on a couple of years ago. Never did. That's a different issue. Won't go there. Thank you for doing the live chat. Do you see Cleveland Heart Lab releasing their HDL functionality test soon? Not in touch with it, Joe Burak. I would love for you, if you don't mind, just putting a little bit about what you know about that area uh, on the comments page. Uh, for one of the HDL um, videos. I'd be very interested in uh, finding, uh, again, whatever you might know about it. Rob T07, hello, what is your opinion on D3 and K2 supplements versus D3 alone? I used to think, and uh, we just discussed uh, K2 a minute ago, I used to think that K2 was um, not a whole lot. And here's why. I went straight, I first heard about it, I'm not sure, two couple of years ago, and then started doing some investigation. I went straight to the randomized clinical trials, and uh, there's not much there, and, and there's still not much there in terms of randomized clinical trials. Now, there are some that are going on right now, which should shed a lot of uh, light on the K2 issue. But um, recently, I decided to go ahead and read some of the books that I've just been putting off in uh, the K2 space. One of them is, uh, I think it's K2 and the Calcium Paradox. It was written by a doc, it's a female doc, can't remember her name right now, but I knew that she'd gotten a lot of criticism for maybe getting out in front of her skis, meaning um, uh, presenting a lot of stuff as if it were fact before it really should have been presented as fact. And I, I I just read that a week ago. Um, it was an interesting book, and now I see why there's been so much interest and excitement about K2. Um, but I would still say, yeah, even the stuff, I don't know how many years ago she wrote it, but even now, a lot of that stuff is still way too early for prime time, way too early to feel like, yes, this is true fact. However, as I said, there's a lot of interesting rationale. There's also a lot of science in related areas. And I'll give you an example, a thing called osteocalcin. Osteocalcin is um, an enzyme that's involved in, uh, K2 impacts the, uh, um, basically whether it's uh, deoxidized or not. 
in other words, activated. And here's the thing. Uh, there's a lot of evidence. It's uh, pretty well known at this point and accepted that this process of laying down more calcium or taking up more calcium is also a very uh, much related to glucose metabolism. That's something that I did not know until reading this book and, and checking out the science in that area. So again, very interesting question about K2. I will tell you what happened, at least personally. After reading that book, I decided to go ahead and get some K2. I've got natto powder that I'm taking, and I've gotten some uh, K2 supplementation that I take now as well. So um, uh, way too early for prime time to say, yes, the, uh, the evidence is there. But uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff about that issue that's out there. Okay. Let's go back. Richard Lund, happy to work on all factors, including insulin resistance and metoquinone. Both paternal grandparents died from atherosclerosis in their mid-60s. Um, very good. Thanks for sharing that. Clinton Bird blood. Not sure what that means. Uh, D. Crispin, one. The discoveries about the issues in Ansel Keys' research worries in that it adds a shadow of doubt about all other research, especially when privately funded. Your thoughts? Well, you know, that's not the first time that happened. There was, uh, in this same space of prevention, just a year or two ago, I didn't go too deep into that. I just haven't taken the time to do it yet. But just a year or two ago, there was some um, scandal about the um, either Coke or Pepsi and uh, their role in, uh, in compensating, quote, experts that were involved in this whole thing about maybe even just uh, uh, covering up the blood sugar, uh, the dietary sugar issue. The, um, my, thoughts, my thoughts are, yeah, it's a scary world. Um, uh, further thoughts, I mean, when you say casts a shadow on all research, well, that's sort of like saying, you know what, we had Enron, so now we're never going to, be involved with any financial institution. I'm going to bury my money in my backyard. Um, that's all I can trust. You know, the reality is you can't trust your backyard either. And pardon me if this sounds like a, a wild analogy, but humans are human beings. They're uh, any human. I don't, I don't trust researchers any more than I do bankers or any other type of human being. You have to watch what you're doing. Well, another component is this. Um, so how do we watch people? I mean, we, uh, in different industries, we watch them in different ways, but we also have an expectation that they're going to be bad eggs that uh, need to be uh, to watch for and filtered out when we find them. Okay. Um, Babak Gunjavian, no, it's for transplant anti-rejection. Oh, I think that was for the... Uh, um, the uh, mTOR rapamycin issue. Uh, that very well may be. I'm not close enough to it yet anymore. That was a few months ago, and there's only so much stuff I can hold in my uh, immediate memory brain. Thanks for sharing it. Um, again, I'm still, I will, it, I will tell you this. From my perspective, I have made no effort to go out and find rapamycin to start taking it. Uh, you know, and I have to say, that sort of gets like, I'm so busy doing my own work, but also I just spent seven days over the past week doing uh, fasting. That is a natural way of stimulating autophagy and improving a whole mTOR and a whole bunch of other biomarkers. So if you're not doing that kind of stuff, why would you ignore doing that and then go out and try to find rapamycin? Craig Larson, thank you, thanks for your great help. What's the difference between the carotid ultrasound and the CIMT scan? It's the ex great question. L let me just repeat that. Maybe I said it too quickly because this is a key issue. I have patients, now that we're in much more of a patient-directed uh, care mode, uh, gosh, a few months ago, we had like three or four patients come to us and they said, yeah, we've, I've got my CIMT. And no, they didn't. They had a carotid ultrasound. And they went to, they swore up and down that the radiologist in the hospital told them, yeah, this is a CIMT. 
sometimes even the, the radiologists usually know, but sometimes even they don't. Carotid intima media thickness test is not readily available throughout the country. Carotid ultrasound is. Here is the difference. It's a piece of software that analyzes the thickness of the plaque. Uh, it's the same ultrasound technology, it's this, which is the same te technology they do for um, an echo of the heart or the same one that a submarine uses, pinging to find uh, structures and differences. The, um, the carotid ultrasound, and there's 300 to 1,000 of those for each one, each one place that adds the CIMT to the activity. Uh, the carotid ultrasound uh, basically is only positive if it impacts the flow of blood. Well, you know from seeing pictures on, on my videos of plaque, you have to get like at least 30, usually 50% occlusion or more occlusion of the lumen of that artery before you start impacting the flow. Well, you don't have to have that much plaque for the plaque to get attacked by your immune system, liquefy, form hot plaque, uh, leach back out into the bloodstream, form a clot, and cause a heart attack. Plenty of people have heart attacks with um, uh, much less uh, atherosclerosis, much less plaque. Plenty of people have strokes with far less than 30% than, uh, 30%, let alone 50% occlusion of their carotid arteries. So again, that's the key difference. It's having that software and what that software does and, and what the technician will need to do is find a flat place in the common carotid artery where you can get one centimeter of good flat uh, coverage and then the software takes actually takes 600 cuts in that uh, one centimeter space and measures the distance of the intima media area, um, the, the distance of the intima and media um, space in that carotid artery. And because we know that's where plaque is laid down. Okay. David Cheney, does magnesium help reduce inflammation in the arteries? Magnesium is very helpful. We do recommend it. Um, the issue is, uh, the short story on magnesium is that even the federal government, uh, USDA, who's, you know, the federal government tends to be very conservative on most of these preventive things. And even they will say probably a third of us are um, at least moderately um, magnesium deficient. So um, uh, that's a significant issue. It has to do with our agricultural uh, activities as well as the way we cook. So I do supplement uh, uh, with magnesium, and I recommend that others do as well. Uh, Peter Liness. Peter, it's great to hear from you. Why are high blood glucose levels so damaging? That is a great question. It's uh, the complete answer to that is maybe a Nobel Prize uh, kind of thing. Here's what we do know, though. If you damage that intima, that one cell lining of the artery, then what happens is glucose in the blood, I mean, uh, LDL, the bad cholesterol, quote, bad cholesterol, end quote, the cholesterol in the blood is transported through those intima cells and they get stuck in the media. That is the essence of plaque. And when you know that, and you know that the vast majority of plaque is made up by LDL, then you begin to understand why we got redirected and went down the wrong path for so many decades as a country, as a culture, thinking that LDL cholesterol was the problem because plaque is made up of cholesterol. What we didn't realize was that the real problem was damage to that arterial lining. Now, why is, uh, why is that plaque a problem? Again, 
You know, let me just add another analogy. Most most people think of arteries as like a, a drain, a, the drain in your shower. Um, it gets clogged with hair and it slowly gets to, if it gets enough hair in it, it slowly gets to where it can't pass water anymore. That's not what happens with arteries at all. Um, and I'll, I'll just mention, before I get into this explanation, you can start thinking about the fact that uh, I've got four videos. All the big uh, medical journals like uh, JAMA and New England Journal have all made the point that stents don't prevent a heart attack. You can't pr predict where a heart attack is going to come from. You would be able to if that mechanism was what caused the heart attack. But that's not the mechanism. It's not a slow clogging of the inside or the lumen. It's where you get plaque that uh, forms in the walls. That plaque, um, your immune system recognizes that and says that plaque needs to be out of here. The immune system only has a few ways of dealing with stuff like that. The most common one is sending antibodies and sending white cells. Those white cells then start releasing enzymes. Those enzymes do their job. They begin to digest that LDL into a liquid form. So everything's good up to that point. However, here's where the problem happens. Um, if that liquid LDL breaks back through that single one cell liner, that intima, it can cause a clot. If the clot's big enough and it goes to the heart, causes a heart attack. If the, clot, if the clot's big enough and goes to the brain, obviously it causes a clot. If it's microscopic, it can go on. For, this process can go on for decades where you're seeding your body with uh, these microscopic emboli or tiny little clots. And guess what happens after uh, decades of that? You get heart failure, you get uh, dementia, you get some of the other things that we talk about with heart attack and stroke uh, prevention. So I hope that uh, starts to give you some perspective on why high blood glucose levels are so damaging. Now, one, one other point to get back to the beginning of this. We do know that glucose binds um, what we call covalently. For those of you who know a little bit of chemistry, glucose binds covalently to proteins. And it, there is some denaturing effect there. What does that mean? It's sort of like cooking an egg. Um, once you cook an egg, it's not going to function like a, like a raw egg anymore. Now, if you say, well, I've never heard of that. Uh, you probably have just never connected the dots. Have you ever heard of hemoglobin A1C? Yes, that's the, that's the thing we look for and try to estimate what your blood sugar has been over the past uh, six weeks to two months. Well, we know what hemoglobin is. The A1C means uh, it's been uh, covalently bound to um, glucose. Why six weeks? Why does it show you over six weeks period? Because your typical red blood cell uh, uh, population averages about six weeks in terms of its uh, lifespan. So once that uh, glycation process happens where the glucose binds to that protein, you're not going to get it back. Uh, the, and again, if it, dis, if it created dysfunction for that protein, it uh, creates dysfunction. It, it's done because it's covalent. Now, one final statement in that area. I used to have a um, professor back when I went to med school, and I didn't know nearly as much about uh, glucose and insulin resistance as I do, do now. And uh, in fact, the research has gone so much, none of us did. But that diabetologist uh, used to carry around a piece of uh, plastic about this big, and um, he'd take it out of his pocket, and he would say, for those of us that are diabetic, the higher our glucose is, the more this is happening to our muscles. Our muscles and our body tissues are getting turned into dead plastic tissue. Um, and people would just sort of look at him and he would say, no, you really don't understand um, how literal I am being. And he was talking about this glycation process. So gone a good bit. It was a great question, uh, Peter, and I've gone a good bit on it. I hope it helped.
Ah, gosh, I just, the thing just adjusted. Okay, John Lamprinos, do we want lower motor? I think you're saying mTOR. And does intense resistance training increase motor? And I think you're saying mTOR. Um, <clears throat> uh, intense resistance training tends to lower glucose on a regular basis. Uh, muscles, functioning active muscles are similar to uh, taking insulin, endogenous insulin, because a separate uh, uh, channel opens in the cell wall. Now, does resistance training have an impact on uh, autophagy? I think is what you're probably asking. I, I think that's really, yes, in that it increases the need for remodeling. But whether or not you use autophagy to create the energy to do that, I think is more driven by your energy availability. There's some other things as well. But again, if I were focusing on autophagy, I would focus more on uh, energy intake, fasting, things, and the types of uh, macronutrients, uh, more on the dietary side. Um, yes, and John, correct, you corrected yourself, mTOR. That's what you meant. Okay, Clinton Bird, will I get a better, better but blood? I didn't know that was a tongue twister. Will I get a better blood flow if I increase my nitric oxide, take minerals? Yes, if you take, if you increase your nitric oxide, but I'm not aware of any evidence suggesting that taking mineral supplementation is going to go there, is going to create that for you. G.G. Friedman, I think he means the endothelium. I, uh, not sure which one you, you're talking about, but yeah, I think uh, that may have been what, what somebody was talking about. Rob Edwards, hi from Australia. Is that Ayers Rock in your, no, that's a lion in your picture. Hi from Australia. I started taking vitamin K2 MK7. That's miniquinone uh, 7, I think is what, what that actually means. MK7, that's what it's the, the popular term. And stopped taking Lipitor. I am diabetic and just wondered, should I have stopped the statin or kept taking it for a while? Thank you. I've had, uh, I've got a couple of videos that are paired. It's a mini series on stopping statins. Stopping statins is dangerous. Um, and a lot of people push back and they say, well, I don't want to take my statin. I understand. Actually, I think I did four videos on it because there's a lot of research out there Here's the problem with that, and people will continue to challenge me and, you're, and say, are you absolutely sure that I should not have stopped my statin? Uh, there's, there's several components to that question. The first one is, why were you put on the statin? If you were put on the statin because you had an LDL of 110 and yet you have no plaque, then you're not going to, then, yeah, I would stop the statin too. The uh, another question about that stopping statins issue has to do with uh, the type of statin you're on. Um, I personally, I have only prescribed Lipitor once that I can remember, and it was in a patient that dutifully tried every other type of statin we have, and um, he needed a statin. He knew it. He agreed to take one. He agreed to try the others, and uh, uh, for some reason, Lipitor was the only one that he could tolerate. But Lipitor has shown evidence that it doesn't. Um, Lipitor is great, as, a, as are all the statins, great at lowering LDL. But again, half the people that have a heart attack or stroke have a normal LDL. LDL is not the big, it's not a big a, a driver of this issue as most uh, people think, including most docs. It is an issue, it is a driver. As we've started to get, get more experience with the P PCSK9s, we have seen yet further evidence that dropping LDL does help in terms of risk. But again, it's not the major issue. It's cardiovascular inflammation. Lipitor uh, is not as effective at managing cardiovascular inflammation as some of the other uh, statins are. We used to do some KIF-6. Well, I'm probably getting a little bit too complicated on that answer. I'll just say... Um, I have taken a whole lot of people off of Lipitor and putting them on Crestor and starting to take a, a significant number of people and uh, put them on um, Lavalo, Um 
Lavallo or Patavistatin is a is a great statin. Unlike any of the others, it actually appears to improve um, insulin resistance. I have not used much of it until very recently because it's so expensive. Uh, unlike uh, you know, Crestor, which is now getting gotten much more affordable, um, we're now. Uh, I had a patient uh, notify me recently. Again, neat things you learn from patients. He had started to find it available at a much better price on a Canadian pharmacy. So that's what we're doing in terms of statins. And um, again, maybe I complicated that answer a little bit, but uh, I hope that was helpful. Brian Fredette, or I hope I pronounced that correctly. Did you see Dr. Ali's YouTube on how HDL leads to longevity? I did see, I don't know if it was Ali. That, that sounds right. I did see a great video um, by a doc, cardiologist, and it was very well researched. And uh, it was on this topic. I, I think it was Dr. Ali. I, that was a fascinating video. And I think uh, hopefully it will lead many others to relook at, quote, bad cholesterol or LDL. Uh, Rob T07. I will say this, though, uh, Brian, the whole concept that, that LDL is bad is not coming without any evidence. The only evidence out there is not just the fact that half the people that have a heart attack have a normal LDL. There, is ton there are tons and tons of evidence associating risk with, um, or there is tons of evidence associating risk with LD, excuse me, LDL. I think in the end, it's, it's going to end up being a debate very similar to the macronutrient debate, plant-based versus low-carb. And uh, I think similar to that debate, we're going to find that no, it's a little bit more complicated than what most of us think walking into that, uh, to that debate. Okay, Rob T07, I suppose my real question about K2 was whether it increased absorption and utilize, utilization of D3 versus taking D3 alone. Uh, here's the assumption, uh, Rob. The assumption is if you take D3 but you don't take K2, then you're not really helping. You're, the D3s... Uh, having you absorb, absorb the uh, calcium, but you're putting it in arteries and places other than the bone. I, I've seen this a million times in less scientific stuff, hawking K2. What they don't do, and I, and I can tell you, I mean, it, it, I'm pretty sure right now that uh, it's not very clear in terms of scientific evidence that if you take a D3, it's all going to go to the wrong place and into your arteries. And if you take K2 with the D3, it's going to go into your bones. Like everybody on the internet says, I, uh, I think that's, I, I think they're getting beyond their skis on that, that issue. I think uh, that's not, there's not a lot of evidence out there for that, if any. Now, if anybody does know of significant uh, scientific evidence, I would love to see it. I think that that's, uh, that would be some very, very interesting, exciting information. I hope that helps, Rob. David Jones, following your fast, did you notice elevated heart rate or other sensations when first refeeding? The most common thing you see with refeeding is uh, loose stools and diarrhea. And I usually have a little bit of that after my uh, two-day weekly water fast. I was surprised I didn't have that uh, the first night. Um, and I went out and had a steak and a glass of wine. So I fully expected to have some problems. I did not. I did the next day. I, I think I overate a little bit. I don't have breakfast. I, I still remain on a, uh, as much as I can on a, on a um, narrowed uh, feeding window during the day, time-restricted feeding. So after my fast, I had that a nice little eight-ounce steak and the glass of wine, and I didn't eat again until noon the next day, and I was very hungry. Um, that shouldn't be a surprise. And I ate a lot, and uh, I had some uh, diarrhea after that. But that was really the only episode I've had. Um, and I didn't mean to turn this away from elevated heartbeat, but I, I'm not familiar with you, you could get a whole bunch of things as you start refeeding. 
But again, the, that's the most common thing I see. And that's pretty reliable, the loose stool. Rob TO70, how do you recommend getting our DNA tested? Oh gosh, the thing just, um, many people are concerned with getting, giving this data to, pop, to popular companies we see on TV and online. Well, I will tell you this, if you're concerned about somebody getting a hold of your DNA, don't get it tested. I, I don't think it's that, I don't think you can protect it right now. I'm not too concerned about my DNA. I've had it tested multiple times. Oh gosh, the first time was over a, dec over a decade ago, maybe, I think over a decade ago, back with 23andMe. They still have my stuff and I'm, my information. I'm sure they continue to check it and because I know they, they continue to send me emails on things that they they find. Um, I work with a genetics lab, my genetics. Uh, that's the only lab in the country, or at least uh, that I know of and that they know of, that um, offers commercially uh, haptoglobin. If you don't know what haptoglobin is, it's a critical um, it's a critical genetic variation for, especially for diabetics and heart disease. I won't get into that, but my point is, um, I'll get back to the same point. If you're worried about people getting a hold of your genetic information, uh, don't get it tested. I, I don't really know the details. My wife talked about it and I thought it was curious, but I just never took the time to investigate it. I know there was a there was a a, uh, a conviction, I think, of a murderer based on something like 23andMe a year or so ago, and there was a big flap over that. And I, um, I, I don't think we have reliable control on that issue at this point. I may be wrong. Again, may be wrong in anything that I'm talking about. Please, uh, if any of you know for sure that uh, it's a, another story, would love to hear about it. Okay, David Jones, the easy sell point for me is that it's easier doing an hour in the gym three to four times a week versus four hours three times a week on a dialysis machine. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to generalize that comment, David. He said, and I'm not sure what he was referring to, but he said, the easy sell point for me is that it's easier doing three or four hours in a gym in a week versus four hours, three times a week on a dialysis machine. The bottom line is it is always easier to prevent. I mean, it's a hassle. It's a lot of work. You know, fasting for some version of fasting for a regular basis and for seven days. And if, all of those things are hard. The, one of the major benefits of the, of the FMD, by the way, is that it's, if there's an easy button for, uh, for fasting, it is FMD, fasting mimicking diet or Prolon. Um, Prolon is the proprietary commercially available one, but you can do your own fasting mimicking diet. I would, I would not argue with Dr. Longo when he says it's not the same. Not, not going to go there. Bottom line, back to your point. Prevention is hard. But it's not nearly as hard as cleaning up the mess. Lee Ginsburg, shout out, please. I'm not sure what that means, but I'll shout out for Lee Ginsburg. I guess that's what you mean. Petty, Peggy Johnson, I keep getting tired after I eat at lunch, after I do intermittent fasting. I have a tendency to hypoglycemia. Um, I don't think that's that unusual. Uh, you know, it's healthy. The research out there about sleeping indicates that it's healthy to get about seven and a half hours of sleep a day. Why did, where am I going with this? Here's where I'm going. It also, the, the research about sleeping also indicates it is very helpful to get a brief nap in the afternoon. So I do that. I don't call it intermittent fasting. I call it... Uh, a time-restricted eating window, or I call it skipping breakfast. I do that. And I do get uh, a little bit tired after lunch as well. I uh, have it planned where if I can, I take at least a 10-minute nap. Uh, I will say this. Um, Uh, let me skip that. I'll, I'll move on. HH, His Holiness, I love the good work you are doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate the, that uh, 
acknowledgement. Lucian P. Patevastatin. Yes, Patevastatin. Lavallo. Mr. Joey Bombot. Hello. Hello, Joey. Good to see you here. Rusty Shackelford. Hey, brother. How are you, Rusty? Steve Mitchum. My LDL is in the 260s, but a scan of my heart showed no plaque. Should I worry about my LDL? Um, well, Steve, I really appreciate you putting that out there publicly because it gives me an opportunity to make a plug for stuff, uh, for something that, um, most people don't know about, but it's a, it's a common issue. It's called familial hypercholesterolemia. Anytime someone's LDL gets above 180, you really start, should start thinking about the possibility of familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, it's not that common. We don't really know whether it's one in 200 people or one in 500 people, but that's still a very significant number. And it's just like this thing with insulin resistance. It's pretty clear that 90% have no clue. Now, for most people that have a, an LDL in, two, in the area of 200 or above, I strongly recommend that you do get the genetic testing. And here's why. Uh, I'll tell you... It, I'll tell you in just a minute, a lot of, F, uh, a lot of uh, FH patients <clears throat> do very well despite having LDLs higher than uh, your level and higher for a long time. But it's when you start adding on something like insulin resistance that creates the coup de gras and that really starts doing the damage. Um, but let me go back and, and make the point about why I recommend the genetic testing. You don't find a patient when you find a positive FH, you find a family. And usually the family's not gonna have any clue. And if your family has uh, the FH gene running around in it, then a lot of your family members have much higher risk than they know that they have. Now let me go back and, and put this in perspective with a conversation we were having earlier that LDL um, act, um, is not a major player in heart attack and stroke. It is a player. And I, I think it was Dr. Ali or someone who was talking about higher levels uh, increased lifespan. Let me tell you something. People that have LDLs 200 and above, 350, 450, 500, their lifespan is not increased. And Dr. Ali was, I never heard him say anything like that. Um, I think the, some of the points that they're making is that there is a very significant variation. It's probably not anybody above 100 has significant risk, and that should be driving our treatment and prevention protocols. Now, um, let me just make an, another comment or two. Go look, um, watch my video, Susan's FH story. Susan uh, has uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. She was in her 30s. She went walk, uh, out hiking in California. She's developed some significant chest pain. She went to her doc, again, a woman in her 30s coming in with chest pain. What do you think he said? He said, I think you're, you're anxious. I think this is emotional. Come back and see me in a month if you're if you still feel bad. Well, she came back in two days and she said, "Look, I feel bad, and I want you to test my cholesterol." And guess what? Her cholesterol was over four hundred. So she did. She she ended up going immediately into the hospital and getting a what a quintuple bypass, I think. Now, <clears throat> uh, so yes, you can get into some significant challenges with FH. Now. Here's the thing to know about that, though. Um, she was also smoking at the time. So here, uh, let me tell you the rest of Susan's story. And again, go look at the video. So she gets the bypasses done. She gets tuned up again. She goes out. She starts getting nervous about her FH. Then she starts eating. And then she ate too much. She went from 130 to 250 pounds. She doubled her, her weight. Sure enough, 15 years later, she had a significant problem again. And um, this was as a, still a relatively young person to be having yet a second 
group of bypasses. Um, but let me finish the story. So then she, um, that motivated her. She lost half of her body weight. She's back down to 130. And she's, what, in her 70s now? And feeling great, uh, doing great. So she, the reason I went through the details of that story is this. FH patients do seem to have a decreased capacity to weather the other challenges like insulin resistance or smoking or obesity. Uh, I've got a lot of FH patients. Um, they tend to do fairly well so long as they keep everything else in line. And the only thing they're having to worry about is that uh, super elevated LH, I mean, F, uh, LDL. Uh, so Steve, thank you very much. I think you, uh, your willingness to share that created a, a big opportunity to share some very important information that's killing people that they're just not aware of. Luchan P, Steve, what's your HDL? How's the ratio? Um, I would be more interested in your triglyceride over HDL ratio. David I Ivers, good to see you here, David. Thanks for joining. Hi, just checking in. Joey Boombox, bad cholesterol was a definition made up by the marketing. Uh-oh, I tell you what, this thing is so jumpy. I lost your, um, it sounded like you were getting ready to say by the bad marketing uh, guys in Big Pharma. I've got my plenty of my own arguments with Big Pharma. Um, I don't think this was all created by Big Pharma. Go see, uh, go, go to ask 10 docs, at least, usually 10 out of 10, um, at least 9 out of 10 usually will say it's LDL. So I don't think you can blame that on, the, uh, on uh, Big Pharma. And again, I think it's more complicated than saying LDL is actually really good for you. And unfortunately, I think that video by this Dr. Ali would imply that. And as we, as I know, and as you see from dealing with familial hypercholesterolemia, that's not exactly the case. Okay. Uh, Luchan P, the highest cholesterol I ever had was 200 plus LDL, but after a year on a statin, it went all the way down to 100 or so. Well, Lucian, uh, oh, uh, maybe I was, let me just share this. This is a good point too. Lucian P says, the highest cholesterol I ever had was like 200 plus LDL. But after a year on a statin, it went, it went all the way down to 100 or so. So that means I'm okay, right? I, yes, but um, FH will often, the LDL and FH often responds very well and you can often get it down to 100 or less. I still go back to what I had originally said. Uh, anybody that ever has an LDL of 200 or above, I would recommend getting the genetic studies um, to look at FH. And again, it's not so much for you, it's for your family. Ray Brook, low cholesterol is dangerous also. Absolutely, uh, especially, I mean, you see a lot of people whose cholesterol levels get down to 20 and 30. I had a patient who was, uh, um, just came to me after an event and the, the, uh, surgeon, the surgeon and the cardiologist were both keeping her at LDLs in the twenties and thirties. And that's not a good thing either. Steve Mitchum. Thank you, doc. That's great information. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking about it. Luchan P. How is low cholesterol dangerous? Well, most of the cells in your body use and need cholesterol to make things like the cell wall or the cell membrane with plants. It's called a cell wall with us. It's a cell membrane. Here's the other thing though. The, if you've ever go, if you go back to high school chemistry, I think in high school chemistry, you see that surely in college and surely in, in organic, you have to see that little chicken wire, um, molecule that's cholesterol. And when you look at, um, all the hormones that are made from it, it is the building block for hormones. And hormones are critical to life and health. Ray Brooke, brain needs cholesterol. Thank you, Ray. I was about to leave, leave that out. Uh, Luchan P, I keep mine as low as possible. Lowest I've ever had was around 100. The body generates cholesterol from saturated fat. Ray Brooke, cell membrane. Ray Brooke uses cholesterol. Yes, we did mention that. Steve Mitchum. 
everyone, please spread the word about this channel. There are quite a few chiropractors on YouTube giving medical advice, referring to themselves as doctor. Uh, thank you, Steve. I do appreciate that. You know, a lot of people gave me grief, given my background, when I said I'm going to go do some YouTube stuff. Because exactly that issue, YouTube is so full of folks that are talking about stuff that they really don't have the expertise to talk about. And that was my goal. My goal is to go ahead and get some good information out there on YouTube and to make it free. So we can start, I mean, again, it's not like we don't have a problem. We've got 80 million Americans with insulin resistance cooking their arteries. 90% don't have a clue. We've got uh, what? What is it? 60 to 80, more like 80% of strokes, even according to the CDC and their conservative estimates, 60 to 80% of strokes should be prevented. All this stuff shouldn't be happening. That's why I started off in ER and immediately said, uh, whether I like I like it or not, I always hated education. <laughs> Pardon me, you're getting me on a rant here. If there was one job I never wanted to be, there were two jobs. One of them was to be a librarian, and the second one was to be a teacher. Now, as I sound like a nut, and I know I've got my issues too, but I didn't want to be a teacher because I felt strongly that you don't teach people people learn and you can't make people learn. And although, although that's true, some of these, I mean, it's not true to say that you don't teach people. I mean, I'm waxing on about, thank you for, for putting up with that. Uh, <clears throat> and thank you for your comments, Steve. David Jones, have you ever had what feels like a niacin flush the day following the main flush? I always take my nice and following lunch. What wonder if some of it gets stored into ADAP. Um, yes, David, if you look, especially if you take some of the, like the wax matrix versions, um, Endurison uh, or Rugby brand, uh, both I think are wax matrix versions where it's the same, um, the same niacin, but you have like a little wax honeycomb and it slowly metabolizes that. I do, I mean, typically you'll see, sometimes you'll see it eight hours later, sometimes you'll see it 12 hours later uh, if you get a flush. Is there storage? I'm not saying there isn't. I don't know that for sure, but clearly you can get very light flushes. David Jones, uh, bugger fat fingered? Not sure what that means. Uh, Ray Brook, many vegan sites on YouTube. Ray Brook, but fish is healthy. Ray Brook, but small fish, low on mercury. That's true. So uh, it's been an hour. Uh, we've had some great participation. I really appreciate uh, your interest. Um, unless we see a significant uh, pop over the next few minutes with a lot more questions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say one other thing and wrap up. The other thing I was going to say had a little bit to do back with the, the original topic of HDL. Um, <clears throat> most of us tend to think of HDL, you know, LDL takes the transports the cholesterol uh, from the uh, stomach and or the intestines out to the through the bloodstream to the peripheral uh, body parts. And that HDL brings it back. You've seen many of those things. It's a lot more complicated than that. It always is. HDL has several functions. One of its most important functions, and a few people are aware of this, but not many, it actually is very much involved in nitric oxide with the, the intima. And nitric oxide is critical to intima or endothelial function, the lining of that critical lining of the uh, artery wall. HDL also is, it goes into the plaque itself and helps foam cells um, eject that LDL that they've absorbed and uh, are trying to digest. It also has uh, it uh, has a major function in terms of uh, the process, in, usually inside the plaque, of oxidizing LDL. And as many of you know, oxidized LDL or OXLDL, which you see on the lab report often, or many of the lab reports. Is the real is the real big problem. So uh, 
and two other things. There's a couple of um, of um, uh, it's not it's not participation. What's the word I'm thinking of? Having a senior moment here. Um, it's when LDL gets stuck. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, there are a lot of fairly unique and complicated functions that HDL has. It's not just transporting uh, a reverse transportation of the cholesterol back to the liver so the liver can burn it. We have had a few more comments. I'm going to cover those and then say goodnight. No trash in heaven. That's an interesting name. Sure, there's a back backstory there. Hello, doctor. My type one husband takes a torvastatin. Might it be one of the statins linked to inflammation? Uh, I've yeah. Again, I don't. I I know this, and it. I'm sure it irritates a lot of people. Uh, for whatever number of people actually listen, I, I don't use a torvastatin. I. Um, don't think it's that good for inflammation. Uh, Peggy Johnson, thanks for your, all your great information. You're very welcome, and thanks for the acknowledgement. Dr. or D. Crispin1, just got to add, you look 20 years younger without the beard and after you fast. Well, thank you very much. I um, Yeah, the beard does make me look older, and thank you. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Rob T. 7 thank you, Doc. Thank you, guys. It's been a wonderful evening. I, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the interest. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.